Scripture, which you'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 4 this morning, we come to the conclusion, verses 35 through 41. Uh, We'll pick up with chapter 5 after the new year as we continue on in the exposition of the Gospel of Mark. But this morning, beginning with verse 35, chapter 4, let us hear and attend to the Word of God. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and the other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. And But he was uh, in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why were you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. As we said, coming to the conclusion of chapter 4 this morning, we see Jesus' mastery over the wind and the sea as creator. He is the uncreated God, attesting to his saving power. Only God is creator and savior, and only God as creator and savior is to be worshipped. And that's where we come in conclusion here uh, to chapter 4. I want you to remind you, that chapter 4 continues on from chapter 3 in the teaching and preaching excerpts. And uh, where we found back in chapter 3, there was the controversy over the Beelzebub blasphemy. Uh, And uh, Matthew says that it's on the same day that we go on into here, Mark chapter 4, and the kingdom parables, Jesus' self-attesting kingdom parables. And here uh, in chapter 4, verse 35, we're told that on the same day coming to evening... So it was a long and exhausting day that is covered for us in these scriptures. And so what is being emphasized to us is that it is not the kingdom of Satan where Jesus was falsely accused and uh, was said to be in league with Beelzebub and that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But rather Jesus by self-attesting demonstrates his creator powers. He rebukes the storm like he rebukes the devil and the demons. And so I hope that you will see how those uh, accounts are collected for us, all of this on the same day. Now, we looked at the first part of Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 34, at Jesus' didactic parables. They're used to reveal and to conceal his mysteries about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And that's challenging for us to know that Jesus both reveals and Jesus conceals by his sovereign will and by his purpose. And we need to recognize who the Lord Jesus is. Uh, I don't grow tired of reminding you that Jesus Christ, a name and a title, Jesus means Savior, Christ means anointed one. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. He's the anointed Savior. He's the mediator, the go-between In terms of the new covenant. He's the only one. He's the door. He's the only way. This is what is meant by his being the only mediator between God and humans. He is the only way. The only truth. The only light. He is the only door. Uh, He is the, the only one that opens into heaven. 
and opens the way to God. There is no other way to God the Father but through Him. And this is that He is mediator of the new covenant. Now this includes and identifies His kingdom to be the church. Um, So that these kingdom parables that we looked at in uh, chapter 4 are about the new covenant church. The new covenant church as the fulfillment and the reconciliation with all of the old covenant promises and types by new and better promises of the new covenant. I cannot overemphasize this. I believe so much could be cleared up if we would remember and always go back to this touchstone of truth that the church is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. You don't find salvation any other way. We're going to witness the creative powers of Jesus as the second person of the Holy Trinity and the the Creator. You're not saved through the witness of creation. You can be overawed by it, and we should be. But we need to understand the mediation of Jesus Christ in the new covenant and His kingdom, the church. That is God's appointed way of salvation. So we'll have more to say about that even as we come to conclusion to uh, chapter 4 this morning. And that brings us then to verses 35 through 41, uh, the concluding portion of uh, chapter 4. Jesus' divine powers are used to rebuke and calm by his mastery over the realm of creation. How is it that he can calm and rebuke the storm and the, the created elements? Because of his mastery as creator. Jesus' mastery over the realm of creation is distinguished from his mediating the grace of salvation. We'll come down to verse 39 where he commands the winds and the sea. His mastery as creator. But we need to understand this coming after his kingdom parables, Jesus' mastery over the realm of creation is distinguished from his mediating the grace of salvation. So Jesus Christ, by his divine nature, being Son of God, shares universal sovereignty with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So that the divine nature of the second person of the Holy Trinity shares uncreated eternality. While the human nature of the person of Jesus came into time and space history at the Incarnation. And that's what we celebrate in terms of what we call the first advent, the first coming, the first revealing, the first making known by the Incarnation. That the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, came into union with the human nature of the man Jesus, of the person Jesus, at the incarnation, at conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, by a miraculous act of God the Holy Spirit. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, not with a human father, not by human means of reproduction, but with a true human nature coming from Mary And yet, the true and divine nature of the uncreated second person of the Holy Trinity in perhaps the greatest of all mysteries, Emmanuel, God with us. God became human. But he never stopped being divine. And that's what is, again, being demonstrated here in his power as creator. And so we need to understand that Jesus, as the only mediator between God and people, uh, humans, only operates his means of saving grace by the Holy Spirit through his kingdom, the church, and not through his sovereign powers over creation. Uh, Again, I want to emphasize that. As we are wowed, and as the apostles and, and disciples were wowed by Jesus' mastery over creation as being the creator incarnate, they were not saved by the witness of creation. 
God's saving grace is only mediated through Jesus Christ. Empowered through the Holy Spirit of transformation and regeneration. And that comes through His kingdom, the church. See, we can't separate what we understand about the body of Christ. I think you understand and get that the head and the body go together. You can't separate the head from the body. There's death. If the head is separated from the body, there's death. So we are livingly united to Christ in His body. He is the head of the church. We also have a a wonderful and great mystery given to us in terms of the bridegroom and the bride. We get that imagery. We get that the church is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. And there's a wonderful union that takes place that is uh, demonstrated even in marriage, but it's greater than marriage. Marriage cannot save you. Marriage is not a sacrament. But the imagery is used of a living union and a wonderful relationship that is something new and connected in terms of covenant. The covenant of marriage is used to represent a greater covenant, the covenant of salvation that we have in union in Christ. But I hope and believe you understand that marriage is not a sacrament. A believing spouse, a husband or a wife, cannot save an unbelieving spouse. Marriage is not a sacrament. You cannot be saved through the means of being married. You can be blessed. You can have sanctified blessings, both to a a spouse and to children. But you cannot be saved. A a believing uh, husband and wife, a believing father and mother, or even one believing parent cannot save their children, even though their children have covenant promise and blessing. But a believing parent cannot save their child. They can pray for them. They can love them. They can bring them under the means of grace. They can uh, share with them the things that God has appointed uh, through the blessing of baptism. There can be witness and promise held out in terms of covenant hope. But a believing parent cannot save the child they love so much or the children they love so much. Only Jesus can save them through His means of grace and through the witness within His church. And when I say there is no salvation ordinarily outside of the church, I don't mean outside of this building. I don't mean outside of this local church. I mean outside of the body and the relationship that is with Jesus Christ as the head and the bridegroom and as the king. See, why do we want to stop short? We say Jesus is the head of the body of the church. We say that Jesus is the bridegroom of the church, of this bride, the church. Why do we want to stop short and not also say Jesus is the king of his kingdom, the church? And so the display that we have here of his powers over creation are witness to who he is. But salvation is through his being savior. And that's different than witnessing and testifying of his being creator. You can believe the miracles. That Jesus performed. I believe that Jesus had power over the wind and the sea here. I believe this was a display of his divine power. I call this a miracle because it was a divine intervention into the the natural course and laws of nature. We'll talk more about that as we get on into it. But Jesus powers and performing a miracle even in reference to his divine power over the natural elements is not salvation. You can believe that Jesus stopped the wind and calmed the sea 
and not believe in him for salvation. It's not just believing in the miracles. There is a false religion that says that Jesus was born of a virgin, but he's not God incarnate and he's not the Savior. You can believe that Jesus was born of a virgin and not believe in salvation and not believe unto salvation. You can believe in the miracles of the Bible and not have salvation. The theological distinction between Jesus' mediatorial kingship and his divine universal sovereignty is often missed and causes entanglement with questions about biblical authority and Christian ethics in social and political philosophy. We get all tangled up. I, I often get questions about that, not just within discussions from within the church body, but even outside through um, uh, Facebook and things like that. And people get very entangled <coughs> about these questions of biblical authority when it comes to Christian ethics, particularly in areas of social justice and political philosophy. And when I generally talk with them, I find out they do not have a grasp or at least a well-founded understanding of the church as the kingdom of Christ. And that salvation is something different. You're not saved through social justice and, and doing good social things. Salvation is not social renovation. Salvation is not a self-help program for society at large. As much as we may be supportive of the history of hospitals and of places of care, of orphanages, of adoption, of food banks and and soup kitchens and other ways of trying to help people in society through our Christian compassion, that is not salvation. One of the problems is that parachurch groups began to start caring for people and they let go of the gospel. They don't tell them they need to be saved and redeemed and, and forgiven from their sins. They start telling them they need to bathe and shave and put on a suit and go have a, a job interview. That will not save anybody. We, don't, we want people to have a better life. We care about a better education. Education will not save anybody. Sadly, our education program has gone more and more to try to deny the things of God. And is at war against the holiness of God and perversions being pushed relentlessly, saying this is better in education. Education doesn't save your soul. And here's where we're talking about in terms of these social programs and political philosophies. People get all in a dither in reference to trying to uh, um, evaluate political figures in terms of Christian ethics. These people were were not uh, voted on because they profess to be Christians. They should be faithful to the constitutional standards and the the right uh, laws of our land. But things have become so confused and so entangled and evil is called good and good is called evil whenever we depart from the transcendent truth of God and His law. Political uh, figures, political servants, political philosophies cannot save your soul. The United States of America is not the kingdom of God. Neither is other any other nation on earth is not the kingdom of God. The current nation of Israel and all the the clamor about recognizing Jerusalem. That will not save your soul. That is not the kingdom of God. Jerusalem is not the capital of the kingdom of God. Heaven is. The seat of His throne and power where Jesus is sitting 
in session in power, ruling and overruling, until he comes in demonstration that he is the king. So there is a there are two crowns that Jesus wears, if I can put it that way. As a second person of the Holy Trinity, he shares universal sovereignty with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is universal sovereign. But he is uniquely the mediator of the new covenant and king of his kingdom, the church, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Jesus mediates his grace through his church and the means of grace that he has appointed and the direction of the preaching of the gospel And he saves sinners through the power of his gospel and the new covenant. And he adopts them into his family and brings them into his kingdom, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. Jesus is wearing the crown of the mediator of the prophet, priest, and king, and the only Savior. You can only be saved through confessing that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah, the anointed one, that he alone is the one who died to take away your sin's guilt, and he rose that you might be justified and made right with God, and that through a powerful working of regeneration and a unique transformation that is supernatural, you are adopted into the family of God by the spirit of adoption. You are united in baptism uh, livingly to Jesus Christ, not with the water, but with the with the uh, uh, washing of the Holy Spirit by the Word of God, and that you are submitted in confessing that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that He is the King, you are subject to His rule and to His law, and you have uh, submitted with your heart to Him in bowing obedience and reverent worship that He is Lord of all and King of kings. And you enter into that great mystery of worship that's in heaven and on earth, And so that's what we're to understand in reference to this. Jesus does not mediate his saving grace through social or political institutions or programs. Although as part of the triune God, he is sovereign judge over all creation and history. You can believe in biblical morality. You can get all up in arms. You can go and you can march in every pro-life march against abortion. You can stand up and shout from the rooftops your commitment to biblical, historic, creation ordinance of marriage between one man and between one woman. You can, you can go to jail for that, but it will not save you. I'm not saying that those aren't things we should stand for, biblical morality. I'm just saying it won't save your soul. Only confessing that Jesus is creator and that Jesus is savior, only that will save your soul. And so here we have at the end of Mark chapter 4 a demonstration of after Jesus giving these um, parables about the kingdom of God. Do you know what the kingdom of God is? The mysteries of the kingdom of God. They're about the church and Jesus' salvation. Then we come to the conclusion and he shows his mastery over creation. Look at verses 35 and 36. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Let us cross over the, the lake, the sea. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in a boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. So once again, a boat and little boats are mentioned here for serving Jesus' needs as commonly used by humans. I want you to see that. Uh, You can go back into chapter 1 and and chapter 3, and again, boats were mentioned. Boats were used, Jesus uh, using these boats. 
And here we're told they put Jesus in a boat, and then there were other people around in little smaller boats, and they were going to follow with Jesus as he was going across to the the, um, quieter and less populated uh, eastern seaside there of the um, uh, uh, Sea of Galilee to get away, to have a break from the multitudes. And we we read what a busy day and how pressing and, and what was going on here. Remember at one point Jesus had a little boat prepared for him, as he was down by the seashore and people were pressing upon him and he said, keep this little boat by in case I have to jump into it. If these people press on me and, and stumble and I fall, I could drown. I just find that so amazing that we have a lesson about thoughtful preparation. Keep that little boat handy in case I need it for safety back in chapter 3 and verse 9. And now, without any contradiction, trusting providence, Jesus says, let's go over the lake. We need a break. We need to get away from here. And they put him in a boat, a larger vessel, as he was. They didn't make any preparations. They didn't go gather food. They didn't go get supplies. They didn't go back to the house in Capernaum. They didn't. They just got in the boat. Jesus said, let's go now. And they put him in the boat, trusting providence to take him as he was, as we're told in verse 36. I love those small little details that tell us and compare to us. I need a little boat for safety in case I have to jump into it, in case the crowd pushes presses on me too much or let's get in the boat now we don't have time to go back to the house i need a break let's go across the sea then we read in verses 37 through 38 Uh, let's go back to verse 36 now when they had left the multitude they took him along in the boat as he was and other little boats were also with him and a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So as they launch off from the shore, Jesus, the boat that he's in, they they get out into the lake. Little boats are following along. They want to go along with him. And Jesus is so exhausted. But now what happens? A sudden, intense, life-threatening storm hits the boats on the water. Not just the boat that Jesus was in, but all the other little boats along with it too. But Jesus remained asleep until he was awakened by his fearful apostles. Now this great windstorm, we're told, a mega squall. There was being a great storm of wind that came. And there's nothing in the text to suggest to us that this was supernatural in origin. It it seems that it was a a sudden um, microburst, a a whirlwind, a tornado, a water spout. It was a, it was a major life-threatening storm. Now remember, several of the apostles were seasoned fishermen and mariners, and the other boats belonged to local uh, seafarers. How did people get in their boats to follow the boat that Jesus was in? Because they had the boats there. Remember, we talked about what a commercial center the shore of the uh, Sea of Galilee was. It was a major thoroughfare. They used it for commerce and for business. Remember, uh, Levi was found there, who was wealthy as a tax collector. And so here, Jesus is in a larger boat, and the little boats are coming along with him, and this sudden storm hits. It's a mega squall. It's like a tornado on the water. And it's life-threatening. As a matter of fact, the waves were swamping the boat. They were already beating and coming into the boat. I think we should take note that deaths at sea at this time were not unlike deaths on the highways that we hear reported regularly. And so this was a common occurrence of a common humanity that was subject even to the threat of death out on the lake. So 
Jesus' humanity is witnessed by his physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual exhaustion. Jesus is not even awake when this is going on. He went into the back of the boat, the stern of the boat. He laid down and found perhaps a, the cushioner, a cushion of the captain or some, something to cushion his head, and he is, he is wiped out. He is in a deep, sound sleep that he doesn't even awaken with this intense storm that's going on. And the apostles' fears are of a harsh death. They say, Master or Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? More literally, do you not care, are you not concerned that we're going to be destroyed? They thought they were already swamped in death. It was a harsh death they were expecting. They were expecting to drown. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being caught out in a boat like that and the, the storm kicks up, the boat's being tossed about like a fishing cork? Any time it might capsize, the waves are already coming into it. And what would you expect? There's no way you could survive that. You will die a drowning death. That's a harsh death. Like you're waiting on death. I remember a phrase. Uh, there was a, a folk singer uh, from Canada named Gordon Lightfoot. And there was a uh, back in the 70s, there was a shipwreck on, I think it was Lake Superior. It was one of the Great Lakes. And there was a ballad about that called the, the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I remember a phrase in that uh, ballad that uh, Lightfoot sang that was, where, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the minutes turn into hours? And he was talking about those mariners on that ship out on the Great Lakes with that storm that kicked up that they were facing their death. They were going to drown. And they were looking at that death, that harsh death of drowning. And those minutes seem to expand into hours of waiting. That sends shivers down my spine. I've told you before, I'm a landlubber. And the, the thought of being caught out like that and being capsized and being swamped and then the harsh death of drowning. That's what the apostles were looking at. It seemed that as they go and wake up Jesus... They did not anticipate that Jesus would overrule the storm, but somehow they expected him to protect them. And I don't want to speculate too much, but I want to tell you, I find myself in that situation often. It's not that I doubt that Jesus can do something. It's not that I doubt his power and his ability. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't think about him overruling the storm, but what I do is I cry out to him. I expect protection. Sometimes all I can cry out is, help me, Lord. I love that father who cried out to Jesus, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And I'm not too critical of the apostles here. As they wake Jesus up and they say with despair and with a harsh death in view, don't you care, Lord? Don't you, don't, aren't you concerned that we're going to be destroyed? There's no way out of this. We're going down. And as I said, I, I, evidently they didn't expect that Jesus was going to overrule the storm. Somehow they expected that Jesus was going to protect them. Sometimes I don't expect that Jesus is going to overrule the storms of life. Sometimes what I think is, Lord, are you just going to put your arms around me and carry me to heaven? I give up and death is all that's left. And I think that's what happened to the disciples here. They gave up and they thought death is all that's left. We'll just die with Jesus. Will you, will you take us to heaven? I don't know what they were thinking. But I do know that they awoke Jesus because they felt like he was the only one who could protect them, but they didn't know what he could do. And the reason I say that is because of what follows. Look at verse 39 through 41. 
Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? Dread fear, terror fear. How is it that you have no faith or or little faith? And they feared, they reverent feared. They were awestruck exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus demonstrates the divine creator powers of his word over the wind and the sea. This is a miracle. Jesus intervenes with natural uh, powers and the natural order of things in a storm on the sea. Jesus is described as being thoroughly aroused, not in a sleepy-headed fog. Uh, I think that's an important detail here. When he was awakened, Jesus wasn't staggering around and trying to figure out what to do. We're told that when he awakened, he was thoroughly aroused. He was completely alert. And he immediately was apprised of the situation. He didn't need anybody to fill him in. He didn't need to rub the sleep out of his eyes. He didn't need to try to find his balance and his his sea legs. He was thoroughly and immediately aroused and recognized. And he spoke using his audible words as witness of his mastery over the realm of creation. He says, peace, be still. Now, I know that's a pleasant and and we, we tend to read into that phrase uh, sort of a calming effect. I mean, I, when I when I read that, maybe you're different, but when I read that, I sort of hear almost Jesus in a whisper, peace, be still, you know, quiet vo- a quiet voice turns away wrath. That, that's not what the Greek is indicating to us here. This is an exclamation, and it's an exclamation of command, be quiet and be muzzled. <laughs> it's like a, like a dog that's rushing at you, that's growling, and, and Jesus says, be quiet, be silent, and be muzzled. Shut your mouth. He has that kind of power. And that's the way he treats the storm. This, this suggests to us a unique creative power. Jesus' unique creative powers addressing the essence and the activity, the nature and the behavior, even over the created things. And I don't want you to miss this. Jesus, completely awake and aroused, speaks with commanding authority. Did Jesus even need to speak? I mean, he could have waved his hand. He didn't even need to get up. He could have just blinked his eyes in the boat. He could have done any number of things. But intentionally, he arouses, he gets up, and he speaks audibly in command to demonstrate his power over the nature and the behavior of the created things. He speaks to the essence and to the activity of what's going on in the created realm because he is creator and master over creation. And this brought up thoughts to me of like Jonah and the great fish. You remember Jonah and the great fish? That, that's a miracle that's laughed and scoffed at. I don't find any scoffing about it. I believe the God who created the sea and the great fish and Jonah can command it. And he commands the fish to come and swallow Jonah, who was thrown over in another storm. And God used that great fish. I don't know if Jonah died in the fish. There's all kinds of speculations about it in reference to it being witness of the resurrection. Maybe he did, I don't know. But I know this, God has command as creator over his creatures. That included the storm, the sea, the freight fish, and Jonah the prophet. And they served his will. He intervened. There was a miracle. He intervened in the natural order of creation. Do you know what happens if a big largemouth bass swallows a frog? That frog is lunch. And it don't come back out. It's, you know, dissolved and digested into the fish. 
But Jonah was not dissolved and digested into the fish. He was spit out according to God's command and God's authority. God speaks through to the essence and nature of his creatures. God made a fish do what it doesn't normally do. And God kept a prophet for his service. Whether he died and was resurrected or whether he kept him alive and had him spit out on the shore, I don't know. But God has power over his creation. How about Daniel in the lion's den? I don't know. Again, I don't want to speculate too much. But I know that God spoke through in terms of the essence, activity, the nature, and the behavior of those lions. Why was Daniel thrown into the lion's den? To be ravaged and killed as a punishment because he didn't obey the king and the king's decree. He was thrown into the lion's den. But what happened the next morning? As the king had said to Daniel, I know your God can protect you. I've often thought, well, why Daniel didn't say, okay, why don't you jump in there with me, king? Let's go down together. No, no, God's going to protect you, Daniel. You're his prophet. He's going to protect you. They threw Daniel into the lion's den. It was not a nice place. It wasn't a zoo. It was in full expectation that the lions would tear tear Daniel from limb to limb. They would rip him apart. They would eviscerate him. They would devour him. But they didn't. God spoke through to the nature and the behavior, to the essence and the activity of those lions, and they didn't behave like lions. He overpowered them. He overruled them. I don't know what happened. I've seen paintings of which I enjoy, of those uh, biblical events. And some show Daniel standing there and the, the lions cowering around and like they're afraid of him. You know, others have been romanticized and show uh, Daniel kind of petting them like they're big uh, lap cats. I, I don't know what happened. I just know this. God overpowered their nature and their behavior. And it was a miracle. God intervened. And there's a difference between a miracle and providence. And I I know we use the term miracle very loosely today. I wish we wouldn't. I wish we would speak of God's providence and blessing and not call things miracles that are not miracles. When God provides for us, when God keeps us safe, when God restores our health, when in various ways God provides for us, that's His good providence. Are there still miracles today? I'm not going to say there aren't miracles today. But I'm going to tell you, God doesn't tell you to pray for a miracle. God tells you to pray for his blessing and his attention and his care. He doesn't tell you to pray for a miracle. There's a lot of false teaching out there. We need to be careful about it. What's being demonstrated here is that Jesus has the creative powers over the essence and the activity, the nature and the behavior of the creation because he is the creator. And so the bottom line is this. If the creator of all things gives you a promise and tells you there's a way of salvation for life after death and life after this world, the creator of all things is telling you the greatest secret of all. This is how you can be saved. And this is how you can know me and live with me for all eternity. That's more important than anything on this earth. So... The instantaneous cessation of the wind and the extensive calm that is recorded for us here when Jesus speaks attest 
to Jesus' claim to be the Creator God because this was not the storm simply passing on down the lake. This was not just a, a, a local little uh, microburst that created a, a real fright for a moment. This was a major storm. And it was going to kill them. I, I don't know about people in the other boats. I have to believe that it wasn't just the disciples and apostles in the boat with Jesus. It was all the other little boats around too. But there's no record to us that anybody died. So I believe that this storm and Jesus' power over it were extensive. The, uh, the storm didn't just pass on down the, the, the lake to another place. It stopped. It was dissipated. And that's the power of Jesus as the Creator. He dissolved the threat. He didn't just move it off somewhere. Jesus speaks as Savior, and He also overpowers the dread fear that we have. That's what I want you to note in what Jesus says in verse 40. Jesus says, why were you so fearful? That's the fear. The word that's used there is the fear of terror. They were terror-stricken. It's the fear of dread and the dread of a harsh death. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of fright. Maybe you have. Sometimes it's not even external. Sometimes something seizes upon us that shakes us to our core. We feel dread. We fear terror. We become afraid. What is it that frightens you? What is it that you're afraid of this morning? We come in here. We have the cares of the world. Sometimes those cares work and enlarge and intensify to actually become fears. We're carrying fears around. We're afraid. We're terrified. And I can tell you, the Holy Spirit knows. God knows what you're afraid of this morning. He knows what has seized you with terror. Just as Jesus said here, why were you terror-stricken? Why were you so fearful? How is it that you have so little faith? You're not believing. You're not trusting. He goes to the world. He's not telling the apostles here that they don't have saving faith. He's speaking to them because they do have saving faith. And he's saying to them, just like in the parables, that faith needs to be nurtured to fruitfulness. Don't have little faith. That's what I'm saying to you and to me this morning. Don't be seized on by terror and fear and the cares that so weigh you down and seem to storm toss you and whatever's going on in your life right now. But have faith. Faith not only that Jesus is the Creator God with powers over His creation, but more specifically, He's your Savior God who will not let the powers of creation separate you from Him and His saving grace and love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Where did Paul get that? The Holy Spirit witnessed it to him in Romans chapter 8, and it's reflected from events like this. This this intense, life-threatening storm. Jesus is saying to them, that can't separate us. I'm here with you. You thought I was just asleep, and and you were going to drown this horrible death, and I'm just asleep in the boat. No! I'm here with you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I am the Creator. But going beyond that for you, I am your Savior. And you know what we can say? That Jesus will move heaven and earth and hell to save us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. What are you afraid of? I'm not being trite here. Fears are real. 
the apostles' fears here that Jesus says they were terror-stricken, that was real. He's not being unsympathetic. Jesus isn't being callous. Jesus isn't being flippant. Oh, why are you worried? I was with you. No, Jesus said, no, no, don't you get it? I'm not separated from you. I'm here in the storm with you. I'm in the boat with you. Why did you think that I wouldn't be with you? Now, once again, I'm not being trite. Whatever you're afraid of, whatever you're going through, Jesus is with you. By his promise, he is with you. I can't tell you what he will do. The disciples did not evidently expect that Jesus was going to dissolve the storm. All they knew is they had to get Jesus awake. They had to get a hold of him. The Bible tells us that the Lord doesn't sleep or slumber. His eyes are never blinked or or turned away from us. But I feel that way sometimes. I say, Lord, are you asleep? Where are you, Lord? Don't you know what I'm going through? Yeah, I'm here in the boat with you. I'm here with you. I'm not sleeping. The disciples appealed to Jesus for protection. We don't know what you're going to do. We've got to wake Jesus up because he's the only one who can save us. Jesus said, I was never asleep. I know the human nature of the man Jesus was asleep, but this is the point he was making. I'm the creator. As the eternal creator, second person of the Holy Trinity, I don't need sleep. I neither slumber nor sleep. Don't you know what the scriptures say? God neither slumbers nor sleeps. His eye is always open and attentive to his children. That's Jesus saying, that's who I am. Yeah, my human nature, I was here asleep. But don't you know I'm the second person of the Holy Trinity? I am the creator God. Be quiet and be muzzled. Get out of here, storm. That's the point. That's what's being directed to us to assure the faith of both the apostles and of us. To assure our faith. We read in verse 41 that they feared exceedingly. This is a different word that's used in verse 40. This is not terror fear. This is awestruck. They were in wonderment. They were awestruck in reverent awe. Jesus is our creator and our savior. That's what it's all about. I want to tell you that's the essence of the gospel. Jesus is our creator and our savior. And they were awestruck at what was demonstrated and what is recorded for us. Are you awestruck that Jesus is your creator and your savior? You can confess all day long that God is the creator. But if you do not confess that Jesus is the only and perfect revealer of God the Father, and he is the savior of your soul, that is the only way of salvation. And he can do that because he is the creator. We have struggles. You know, it's interesting. There are struggles this time of year around Christmas, the Christmas season, with expectations and anticipations, and a lot of people get depressed. There's all kinds of disappointments. Have you ever struggled with that? I mean, even in terms of the, just the cultural uh, kind of display. Have you ever said this to yourself? Well, it just doesn't feel like Christmas. Because of anticipations or expectations that you have, maybe you're carrying them over from previous experiences or whatever. I think we get off track. I think the focus needs to be in awe and reverence of who Jesus is. It's not about the Christmas feeling. It's really about the confession that our Creator has become our Savior. That's what it's about. And I I think this could be a Christmas message. Jesus, the Creator, is our Savior. 
He came into this time and space history. He slept in a boat in the midst of a storm in terms of his humanity, but in his divine person, he was never asleep or separated from his fearful disciples. And so I hope you'll take this message with you that saving faith is biblically confirmed to believe in the heart and confess with the mouth that Jesus Christ is the self-revealing, self-attesting Creator God. And He is the incarnate Savior. He is the unique God-man. He is the Son of God and He is the Son of Man. That's what Mark has been telling and attesting to us over and over in these four short chapters. Jesus Christ is uniquely Son of God and the source of the Gospel. He is the Son of Man who has come to reveal to us that our Creator is our Savior. So the mysteries of the Kingdom of God, the mysteries of the Kingdom of Heaven, and the mastery over the realm of creation affect worship in awe of Jesus beyond what we can fully understand with deepening, desiring questions. Who can this be? That even the wind and the sea obey Him. This is Jesus, our Savior. And I hope those questions will direct you as we come to the Lord's Supper. Who can this be who gives His body and His blood? This is the incarnate God and His way of salvation. That He became like us and yet unlike us. Like us in true humanity. Unlike us without the guilt of original sin.